Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. So a very good morning to you. You're very welcome to this morning's Signpost webinar. My thanks to Pat Murphy and to Porig Foley for keeping the seat warm for the last few weeks. And this series is brought to you by Chagask in collaboration with Dairy Sustainability Ireland, the National Rural Network, and uh, Food and Drink Ireland Skillnet. There are over 145,000 recorded archaeological monuments around the country in private and public ownership, with the latest research suggesting evidence of human activity in Ireland well over 10,000 years ago. The Irish countryside is unique in Europe in the number of ancient monuments that survive, and farmers play an important role in the preservation and the protection of these features. I'm delighted to be joined by Hugh Carey, who is an archaeologist with the National Monument Service, and Dr. Catherine Keena, Countryside Management Specialist with Chagask. Hugh and Catherine, you're very welcome to today's uh, webinar. Good morning. So, Hugh, you're going to give us a presentation uh, on um, what's happening in the National Monument Service, and Catherine, you're going to help us out with the uh, questions and answers at the end of uh, Hugh's presentation. But firstly, Hugh, could I ask you just maybe to tell us a bit about the work that you're doing in the National Monument Service? Well, we, we implement National Monuments legislation, really, is, is a kind of a prime uh, task that we have. So we would uh, issue licenses for excavations. Um, we would uh, be involved with all the National Monuments, which are owned by the state. They're owned by, by our minister, in effect, and the OPW. We have a, a, an a arrangement with the OPW where they do all the sort of looking after the monuments, but they're actually in the ownership of our of our minister. Um, we uh, Im implement national monuments legislation with regard to potential problem damage maybe to monuments. We're also involved in the planning system. Uh, we're involved with World Heritage. Um, we have uh, we have an archive that, that is available to the public. So it's a wide range of activity actually that we, we take part in. And a part of my job as well is is in involving myself in in uh, the agri environment end of things as well with and I've had great uh, contact with Catherine and Chagas generally and the Department of Agriculture over the years as well. So, and I see that um, the National Monument Service has a campaign running at the moment around protecting uh, our our heritage. Our I think protecting our past is the yes the tagline. Um, yeah, that's it. it. It's it's a it's um. I suppose it's highlighting to some degree the um, the need to to you know protect our monuments in the sense that uh, you know there has been a, a little some damage occasionally done to monuments over the years, but really I think it's more positive as well in that we want to bring people's attention to the existence of these monuments, which as I'll be saying in the course of the talk, you know, and as you said in your introduction, in fact, is a, a very unusual aspect of the Irish countryside. You know, we've so many. And many of them are accessible, uh, many of them owned by the station and completely accessible, other ones just accessible on farmland around, uh, around the country. And it's really that kind of positive message we want to give to people too, that there's a great public good out there, uh, something that's free to them. <clears throat> and we'd love to have them go and, uh, you know, get interested and visit these monuments as well in the field. Yeah. I know that a lot of countries uh, look with envy at the amount of uh, heritage and uh, built heritage that we have in this country. Catherine, you've been uh, for the last, uh, well, most of your career was working with farmers to, to help them and uh, educate them about the, the value of, of this built heritage on their land. Yeah, and I, mean, I think it's growing. You know, there would have been a time when, when monuments would have been removed for production. And I think we've, we've moved far, far away from that now where Farmers are seen to produce public goods and we're probably more familiar with food, the food and the biodiversity and the, the water and the climate. Um, but I think the one that should be added in there is the cultural heritage. Um, is, is, is a, it's small and I suppose it has suffered over the years because it is small both on farm and, you know, it's not every farm that has them. So it's a niche area. Um, but all the more reason that it's more important on a farm that has got them. Really, really, I suppose it's part of our our, our DNA. Really, the, the this this this, uh, this 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 whole uh, array of, of monuments that we have across the country. And of course, we're just about to enter National Heritage Week, starting uh, officially starting tomorrow, running till the twenty second of August. So, so today's uh, and, and next week's uh, presentations are part of National Heritage Week. So, and I do encourage 
anybody with an interest in heritage, or even if you don't have a, a, an interest in heritage, maybe it might surprise yourself that some really amazing events happening across the whole country, um, and more than likely there's something happening in your local community. So do check out uh, National Heritage Week, um, and uh, I'm sure you'll find something that will be of interest to you or your, your family. So Hugh, we might ask you to, to share your screen with us uh, for your presentation. Well, just to first of all, thank you all for <clears throat> for logging in and and joining me this morning. Uh, just to give you an idea of what I'll be talking about this morning, uh, I'll first of all give a kind of a very brief rundown of the types of archaeological monuments. It's not going to be an exhaustive list. It's just to kind of make you aware of, of if you like, the space that we're in. And uh, after that, we'll I'll talk briefly about how and why monuments are protected. Uh, then, bearing in mind that it's a a Chagas event, I, I wanted to talk about archaeology in the Rural Development Programme, particularly in, in the Agri-Environment Schemes, which is an area I deal with a little bit in work. And then having discussed that a bit, we go on to the future in that sort of context, if that's okay. Um, I'm not going to try and turn you into archaeologists, you can do that yourself. And uh, the place to start is a series of articles that are uh, still available on the National Monument Service website at the address you see on the screen there. And there are a series of articles that were uh, written by National Monument Service archaeologists in 2012 and published in the Farmer's Journal. So you can see there are 12 of them there and they go from the earliest times up to the early 17th century, say. So, you, so you'd have a good, um, a good kind of coverage of the types of monuments and the kind of, I suppose, the, the, the farming viewpoint, if, or if you like, or the interaction between archaeology and farming from those. So they're uh, still available online uh, should you want to have a look at them. Now, this is just an extract from the, uh, a not very pretty one, I'll tell you why I've chosen this particular image now in a second, but it's just an extract from the Historic Environment Bureau, which is the public facing portal from, uh, of the National Monument Service. And all those red dots marked there are archaeological monuments, and the blue ones are other built heritage, but the red ones are archaeological monuments. And uh, the reason I'm showing you this is because, well, for a start, as, as Mark was saying in the introduction, there are about 120,000 records on, of archaeological monuments on the, the Historic Environment Viewer in various stages of repair or disrepair, you know, accessible, not accessible, ones owned by the state or a local authority and other ones in private ownership. But the vast majority of them are, in fact, in private ownership and on farmland. And the reason I've just taken a kind of a chunk out of the map just to show you where the dots are is to make the point that they're clearly not congregated in towns. They're, they're scattered across the countryside uh, in private ownership on farmland. And that's unusual in, in a kind of a, a European context. If you think of places you've gone on your holidays, you don't really see archaeological monuments scattered across the countryside in the way that you do here. I mean, even if you if you think of our nearest neighbour in the UK, who are kind of a bit of a, a superpower in a way, in, in the way that they, you know, mark their heritage and, and preserve it. And, you know, they've the National Trust and English Heritage and Scottish Heritage and all the rest, amazing organisations and terrific towns. But even driving around the countryside in, in the UK, you don't see, you know, monuments to the extent that you do on any drive long or short <clears throat> in this country. So it's just to make that point, it's quite a special kind of feature of our landscape here uh, that gives it a particular character. And I think it, it deserves a, a recognition in that, for that reason. So just to give you the kind of background again, as Mark was saying, the earliest evidence for human activity in Ireland uh, goes back to around 10,000 BC in around 7500 BC, and this is very much a kind of a potted archaeology, we have evidence for uh, hunter-gatherers, so people in other words who followed their sources of food around, so they weren't sort of settling for long periods of time or permanently in the in the landscape, they, were, they weren't you know building permanent houses and, and field systems and all the rest of that, but that comes in around 4000 BC with the introduction of farming, and so we get our more permanent settlements. Archaeologists will find evidence of houses uh, field systems we know about in various parts of the country. So really, with the introduction of farming, you're kind of off to the races. The And pretty much everything, every structure you could say that was built in the landscape for thousands of years after that, they were built by farming communities to, to serve their particular uh, farming purposes. So really, you could say up until relatively recent times, you know, 
in terms of uh, surviving and making a living and uh, bringing up your family, um, agriculture and farming was the only the only show in town, and all the structures in the landscape reflect that. So um, even the towns, you could say, really were were you know their the reason they existed was because of the the the, the produce that was brought into them from from farming communities in the inter, in the hinterland. So really, what's being preserved? in archaeology in, in Ireland and in every country really, is the sort of archaeology and heritage of, of farming communities. So there's a kind of circularity to, to you know, modern uh, farming communities being encouraged and in some way hopefully incentivized to look after these monuments, which they have done anyway for, for millennia clearly, because that's why we, we still have so many. So it's nice to, to recognize that and to um, acknowledge it as well, I think. So again, just to again uh, show you the kind of space, remind you of the type of monuments we have in this country that are so kind of special. And it's not going to be an exhaustive list. I'm just I'm not, I'm not going to turn you into archaeologists, as I said. The idea is just to, to remind you again of the kind of space we're in and the quality of monuments and the range that we have in this country. So it's not an exhaustive list. But of course, we have, you know, going back from you know 4000 BC up to about 2500 BC we've a range of burial monuments which are the oldest archaeological monuments in the landscape um this is um, a wedge tomb on the burn in cavan if i remember correctly but you'll all be familiar with uh, the tombs in the boyne valley and all they would fit into the same sort of class uh, we have these kind of enigmatic <coughs> monuments um stone circles stone rows, stone pairs that would all uh, fit into a date range of around maybe 1700 to 800 BC. Uh, you know, usually their function is, is a little bit more mysterious. They sometimes are aligned in some way on, on significant solar or lunar events. Um, we have burial monuments, again, a different class of burial monuments. These ones a little bit later uh, from maybe 2500 BC up, up way up into to, uh, maybe, you know, 1000 BC, something like that. Uh, these are earthen barrows. They sometimes are quite large, like this one, a big sort of a, a bowl shape, but they can be very, very uh, low profile, uh, low, you know, barely visible in the in the landscape, uh, quite large in diameter or quite small. They vary in shapes and sizes. Um, there's uh, and, and they, they have these related monuments then, which are cairns, which is kind of can serve the same function. Now they're harder to date, uh, but you know, cairns were used for a lot of things over many millennia. But uh, we have, so just to make the point that you can have earthen burial monuments, you can have stone burial monuments. Um, a little bit more familiar then is our beloved ring fort, the most common monument type in the country. And this one, well, they, 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 the range in which they were building these seems to have been, you know, maybe sort of 700 to 900 AD. They're the sort of dates that are coming from them when they're excavated. And they're essentially a defended farmstead. You can see this example has, you know, multiple banks and fosses, fosses being the, the bit dug into the ground, but they can be simpler. They can be just maybe one bank and a foss. And, um, uh, you know, as I say, a defended farmstead, very, very uh, common across the countryside. The Anglo-Normans, of course, came to Ireland in the late 12th century and they brought with them their particular monument types. Uh, this is a Martin Bailey a type of castle, actually, an earthen castle, an earthen mound. In this case, this is the one at Granard, which is the kind of granddaddy of them all. It's a very, very large monument. And you're seeing kind of in the background uh, with the with the statue of St. Patrick on it is a big earthen mound. It's actually a slightly modified hill, that one, but often they were made from, you know, literally from the ground up. And uh, stretching out towards the camera then is a bailey, which was another just a sort of a platform that could be enclosed. And it was at the foot of the uh, of the of the mot itself. There's another example in Kilbixie in County Westmeath. Uh, plenty of biodiversity on that one. We can talk about that a bit later, too. We have various church sites earlier, earlier than this. This is a medieval one in Tipperary, but there are plenty that would be earlier. You know, we'd start seeing those appearing in the in the country in you know the early centuries AD. You know, maybe seventh century church sites are quite common. For example, uh, uh, you'd you'd be familiar with you know Clonmac Noise. These early church sites became very large and powerful in the history of Ireland, um, and also these these later uh, medieval ones as well. We have castles in all shapes and sizes and states of preservation. Uh, this is 
what a quarter of a tower house, but sometimes they're in terrific condition. You feel you could move in if, if you got Dermot Bannon on, on your side. Um, so it's just to, say, to make that point of a very, well, then coming into the 17th century, we have uh, these fortified houses in the early 17th century. That one's on Carberry Hill in Kildare. So it's just to make that point to you again, not an exhaustive list of monuments, but just to remind you of the quality of the monuments that we have here and the kind of range uh, of, um, you know, monument types and the various purposes, the burial ones, the habitation ones, the military ones, uh, a very wide range of monuments, uh, most of them, as I say, privately owned on farmland and in various stages of various types of condition. We also have these types of monuments, which are monuments with little or no surface trace. Now you can see our little red dot there and then radiating out around it, there are three sort of lines in the ground which indicate uh, the, that even though the field clearly has been ploughed many times, one presumes, uh, the archaeology is surviving still below the ground. So even though the monument is substantially, it mightn't even be visible on, uh, at ground level, there's clearly a lot surviving below ground if it can leave that kind of a stain, you know, that's visible on an aerial photograph. So what you're seeing there really is probably the truncated bottom portions of banks and fossils that surrounded this monument and plenty of archaeological evidence and information to be gleaned from it if, if ever it were excavated. So it is, uh, you know, still very um, important archaeologically that site and we have quite a lot of those across the countryside as well. So again, just to kind of reiterate that until very recent times, it's an obvious point, most structures in the landscape were built by farming communities. It's largely a farming heritage that's being confirmed and it are, are being conserved. And it's important and it makes sense to help farmers to preserve it. There's archaeological monuments are protected, of course, um, by in various ways. We have the national monuments legislation, which I mentioned to you a little while ago. Um, which is the, the body of legislation implemented by our department. Um, we're also involved in the planning system. In a, a large part of my job, for example, is that I get planning referrals sent to me by planning authorities, and I make recommendations and make a decision as to whether archaeological work is needed before a development can proceed. Um, we can even recommend, it's up to the council to make the final decision, but we can even recommend refusal if we feel that the impact on archaeology would be just too severe. Where uh, uh, cultural heritage, heritage in the broadest sense, is a receptor course in the whole environmental impact assessment process. And I'm sure many people watching will be familiar with uh, the, the position of monuments in the whole cross compliance kind of regime. And of course, sometimes things go wrong and monuments do get damaged or destroyed. And the National Monument Service has, has taken people to court uh, in circumstances like that. And, um, you know, a judgment has gone against them. And quite apart from whatever you know, fine or they might receive for destroying the monument, it'll also have a very bad effect on their, their farm payments. So, um, you know, that aspect of things uh, is, is, you know, exists as well. But let's not dwell on, on the negative. Um, why protect archaeological monuments? Well, it might seem like a kind of an obvious uh, question to ask, but, <clears throat> you know, you can protect them because they're useful. And I don't mean necessarily in that way, but I just uh, wanted to show you that picture. Um, it, it's, it's Heritage Week, or it's nearly Heritage Week. I think just to kind of indulge myself a little bit in, in, in asking this question and answering it. I suppose, as, as uh, Mark was saying in the, in the introduction, you know, it, it might be as important to, to everybody as it is to the likes of me. Uh, I suppose an archaeologist, you know, I, I would say that but, but one of the things that have gotten me interested in archaeology in the past was you, you'd kind of get moved by monuments. You know, it is, they are very common in our landscape. They're a special part, let's say drink water. <clears throat> They're an unusual and a kind of a special feature of our landscape. And there is something about the atmosphere of them, I find. I mean, again, I speak personally, it might apply to everybody, but the, you know, that you, you, you you'd be curious about them. They'd make you want to know more. There's a very, there's a, you, you think of, you know, the activity that happened around them in the past when they're being built or used and, and what that means. When you think of, for example, uh, you know, I say that they, they are important to people as, as they contribute to a sense of place. There are many, many heritage and historical and archaeological societies across the country. 
and also a great interest in, in you know, family history and so on. And when you think of people maybe coming back to visit a place where an ancestor theirs had left, uh, the thing that probably won't have changed that much might be the castle or the graveyard or the ring fort. You know, the, the field boundaries might have changed. A lot of even the natural heritage things, you know, the lake might have been drained or, or become smaller, whatever might have happened. <clears throat> the channel of the river might have changed, but the archaeological monuments hopefully will still be there. So they really do give a kind of a, a, a sense of place and a kind of a depth, a time depth, if, if I can put it that way, to, to our landscape. And of course, they're an educational resource for ourselves. I mean, forget for a moment about tourism. They're, they're public goods par excellence, and they, they are um, a free kind of educational and recreational resource for our own population. And that's before you even get into, you know, people like me who like to study it in, at, a, at a different kind of level, at a more almost a kind of a scientific level. And I think to point out about archaeological monuments, of course, is what, that when they are gone, they're gone. You, there's no point in, in, very little point really, in rebuilding something because it's not what it was. You know, it's not just the shape or the space it occupies. It's, it's how it was built and, and, and how it came into being. And really, you can't, you know, reintroduce monuments to an area. Once they're gone, they're gone. And you see these things in the landscape as, you know, big stone or earth monuments, and they look a little bit indestructible. But really, they're actually quite delicate. And, and you know, that's why you have to be so careful to try and reduce the impacts on them from generation to generation, because a little nip every now and again over the, the, the long periods of time that we're talking can uh, result in a whole lot of damage. So it's important just to regard them as maybe um, more delicate uh, and fragile than they seem. We'd also like to think that maybe the, the idea that monuments can be a potential for a financial benefit uh, <clears throat> to farmers and landowners uh, is coming into being as well. And we'll talk about that a little bit uh, with the regard to the agri-environment schemes in a minute. But, you know, there's also the potential from agritourism and, and uh, you know, it has contributed as far as I, I, I'm aware to, to some farming comes, you know, where that will work. It's not possible for everybody, but, uh, you know, there is that potential. There's also rural development aspect to archaeological monuments. They can be very kind of, um, uh, the, you know, they can be very much kind of adopted by, by local communities and important to them and be regarded as an asset and something as well, of course, that would maybe literally become an asset in the sense that it might attract people to visit an area. Uh, and become a kind of a selling point for overseas visitors. And that point is, is recognized in a, more, in a wider context as well. Like all of these uh, national and uh, sectoral plans that I'm showing you on the screen have <clears throat> a lot of uh, references in them to heritage, cultural heritage in the broader sense, but also built heritage, you know, archeology span and, and uh, and uh, protected structures, you know, significant buildings of one sort or another of all ages. So, so there's an awareness in these plans that there's something special in, in our landscape, in our countryside, uh, in archaeological monuments, and, uh, you know, that there is a, a value to be had from them and that they need to be looked after. So <clears throat> to move on a little bit then uh, to an area that, uh, that I do some work in, is archaeology in the rural development program, agri-environment schemes. I'll broaden it out a little bit more from the schemes, but uh, the area that I suppose I know more about is the agri-environment scheme. So we might stick with that for the moment anyway. And essentially there have been three uh, uh, over the years. Uh, the, rural, the REPS, the Rural Environment Protection Scheme, which closed for reasons we would rather not discuss in, in what we'll all remember in 2009. Uh, the uh, agri-environment option scheme succeeded it and there was no archaeological action in that. Uh, <clears throat> and then, and currently we have GLOSS, the, the Green Low Carbon Agri-Environment Scheme, uh, which opened in 2014. Now, I won't do a big kind of exhaustive trip through, through the very, there are four uh, phases of REPS, as I'm sure many of you know. I won't do a big exhaustive, uh, you know, discussion around them. But just to pick, with regard to REPS 1 and 3, first of all, the, they all of those uh, phases had a measure seven, which was entitled protect features of historical and archeological interest. And really <clears throat> it, was, it was, I remember when uh, REPS was first mentioned, 
uh, it was of great interest to archaeologists because I suppose you could say that it was really the kind of first time that we felt we could engage in, in this kind of way with um, archaeological monuments in private ownership on farmland. And the simple, uh, uh, what would you call it, the, the measure that was arrived at was just to provide buffer areas around monuments. And that sort of stayed with us in reps and even into gloss now, a very simple matter of just making sure that groundworks don't happen on or close to archaeological monuments. So that was, that's been a unifying theme throughout reps over the years and into gloss. And the, the, the buffer areas have changed maybe in size over the years, but essentially that's what's uh, remained in place. Um, there was also over the years in, in reps, you know, thoughts and, and discussions and measures trying to encourage public access to monuments on farms that kind of, you know, flared up and died down over time. And also to the discussions about plowing, particularly with in, over monuments with no surface trace. And uh, that issue I'll, I'll discuss shortly, but that was also part of it, always a kind of a theme <clears throat> through the, the various phases of reps. Um, but it introduced, of course, the idea that, uh, that monuments could attract a payment, you know, and not necessarily a life-changing one, but it, it was a, a very good, uh, I, I, you know, thing to introduce into the whole, into the whole uh, discussion. And it also gave the opportunity just quite apart from the, you know, the, the, the specifics of the, uh, the buffer areas, it was a great opportunity to introduce just general kind of common sense management practices uh, reps was, you know, these common sense things like avoiding damage by heavy machinery <clears throat> and continuous movement of animals <clears throat> across monuments. Uh, discouraging dumping of materials, you know, or storage of materials, all these common sense things. Uh, don't fence monuments off. <clears throat> the, that you could allow uh, animals have access to, to monuments because the grazing kept down scrub and uh you know that's a good thing it, it, once it's monitored and kept at a certain level it's a it's a it's helpful you know because you don't want a uh, scrub encroachment on monuments to you know to uh, an excessive degree and, you know citing troughs carefully not using buildings for historic buildings for livestock so all of these kind of common sense things it was a great opportunity just to feed that in to the the agri-environment scheme and it was very helpful really very helpful over the years uh, I'm concentrating just now on, on Reps 4 because just to point out a sort of a, a little shift that happened within it in that the name of the action, it was still Measure 7, uh, changed a little bit about uh, to establish um, biodiversity strips uh, around monuments of historic and archaeological interest. So you can see there's a kind of a shift there that the, 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 the protecting the monument part has, has changed a little bit. And of course, that was in response to the EU's uh, growing concerns over climate change and water quality and biodiversity. And um, it was the first, I suppose, recognition that quite apart from their value kind of in cultural heritage terms, archaeological heritage terms, uh, that monuments are also quite often, well, almost always, I would say, um, uh, foci of biodiversity. And you can see that uh, in the, the specifications for EPS4, they were saying that the, the buffer zones and margins might become uncultivated areas, which might become a refuge for for rare plants. So it was just an interesting connection between archaeological monuments and biodiversity. <clears throat> Another good thing that came out of, of reps as well, of course, was that there was a recommendation that any new sites that were found, when I say new sites, it sounds funny, uh, you know, monuments, in other words, that the National Monument Service didn't know about, we defer to them as new sites. Uh, you know, there was a recommendation that the National Monument Service be told if if a new site was discovered. And it can quite often happen that somebody will be looking at a monument, not seeing it on the National Monument Service maps and presume it isn't a monument. But of course, it might just mean that we don't know about it. So we'd always encourage people to report, you know, a new monument if that's what it appears to be. We can always come and check it out and see if it's the, the real thing or not. Um, <clears throat> and it was clearly stated also then, as I touched on briefly already, that monuments shouldn't be fenced off because it causes and, and this is something that came in a little bit in reps and it sort of crept in and I think you know with the best will in the world it became a practice for some people to fence off monuments because you know they thought well what better thing could you do for a monument than to put a fence around it and, and nothing can harm it but and and it's completely understandable you know we're not sort of judging anybody 
but uh, I suppose the unintended consequence was that scrub generation happened and some monuments became quite uh, densely covered. And you've got then root action as well as, you know, for, uh, burrowing animals congregating in these places as a result. So we tried to deal with that subsequently then in, in GLOSS. So GLOSS came along <clears throat> in 2014 and has two options in it of an archaeological nature. Again, one which you can see the first one uh, establishing a margin around a visible archaeological monument in a tillage parcel. Of course, the word visible means that, uh, you know, the, the monuments with no surface trace, which were you, you couldn't plough over actually in reps four, uh, are, are back now, you know, they're, they're excluded somewhat in, in Gloss because it has to be a visible archaeological monument, which is, you know, upstanding. Um, but in any case, it's the it's the direct descendant of the, the margins and the buffer areas in, in reps. And then the second one was to try and address this issue that had arisen a little bit in the course of reps um, to reduce the increase in um, scrub, uh, you know, quick colonizing trees and invasive woody plants. It wasn't to be, the idea wasn't to sort of remove all vegetation from monuments. It was simply to, to stop the, the encroachment of scrub on monuments. So that's a, a, a current option in Gloss. Um, so I, I brought to your attention that uh, that uh, aspect of Reps 4, where the, the sort of accent, the, the, the stress, if you like, was changed slightly uh, in the archaeological measure to uh, a sort of a biodiversity, more biodiversity um, sort of um, concentration on biodiversity or at least to help to biodiversity. <clears throat> so I just want to give you a kind of a short history just to concentrate on that point a little bit of biodiversity and archaeological monuments in the agri-environment schemes and, and beyond in actual fact. So we have the biodiversity strip idea introduced in REPS 4. And now this was something that we had, the National Monument Service had asked about over the years and wondered about because do you remember in uh, the ecological focus areas um, as, as part of greening, it seemed quite kind of logical from our point of view, from the National Monument Service point of view, that archaeological monuments would kind of fit into that space, you know, that they had potential to be um, to be uh, ecological focus areas. And sure enough, in 2015, uh, protected archaeological sites were designated as landscape features by the Department of Agriculture. The National Monument Service can take no credit for that. Uh, it goes completely to the Department of Agriculture. It was their idea and we were very grateful to them for doing it. But this meant, of course, if you kind of join the dots, uh, that their, the biodiversity value of archaeological monuments was recognized and that could, they could be used as ecological focus areas. And even though, you know, in the context of, of the, the, the way things uh, were organized, it, it, that might have affected a very small number of monuments, it was still uh, very encouraging, you know, that this value of them was being recognized. So in big letters, biodiversity value of protected archaeological monuments has been accepted. But as I say at the end there, uh, greening is no more. So has the moment passed? Well, and we're going to talk now just a little bit about the future. But just before doing that, uh, and I'll be finishing up fairly soon, that seemed quicker than I thought it would be. Um, just to remind us again of what we're dealing with, uh, <clears throat> There's an archaeological monument, I, a ring fort, I think, in County Mayo, uh, a, a cashel, a stone fort in Galway, uh, a ring fort also, I think, in Galway. What have these all got in common? Well, I mean, I'll go back through them very quickly. Where's the biodiversity? You know, you can see that they're in a, a field of grass. The biodiversity there's a lot of biodiversity on, on the monuments. It's a kind of an obvious point, isn't it? It might, it might need a bit of management, but it's there. Um, now, in the, in, the, in the following points I'm going to make, I'm speaking to you as an archeologist, obviously. Um, I'm talking now about biodiversity. So you can kind of see that I'm not entirely in my comfort zone. And I, I make points that seem obvious to me, uh, I think to develop them really, uh, you know, we, we need to be talking to ecologists and other people who can help us out with this. And also, of course, uh, you know, the, the deep understanding you need of, <coughs> of the rural development regulation and all of these things. Again, um, uh, you know, there are people who understand these much, much more clearly than I do. But 
and maybe that will emerge in, in the questions and answers. But I'd certainly like to have views on this. <clears throat> so I'm kind of maybe floating things a little bit here. But say in the context now of, of strategic, of CAP strategic plans. Now I know there'll be the, the agri-environment scheme still in the future, one hopes as well. But if we try and analyze this as much as we can in terms of archaeology and, and biodiversity and where, where monuments might fit into this, we can see that the we know so far as, as I understand it, that the strategic plans have to address a number of general and specific objectives. And I've picked out these three, which seem to, you know, which archaeological monuments might be able to contribute to. Um, I won't go reading through them all, but I just draw your attention, I suppose, first of all, to uh, GO3 there, to strengthen the socioeconomic fabric of rural areas. Well, you know, as I was saying earlier on, uh, th there is a sort of a connection between archaeological monuments and, and rural development. You know, it mightn't be, again, a game changer, but it's, it's definitely there. And uh, the, the images I showed you will make the point themselves about biodiversity and, and monuments, just in terms of the, the range of, of that. Um, <clears throat> my understanding of, of what CAP strategic plans are supposed to do is that they answer these uh, questions here. Uh, <clears throat> they'll answer national problems and needs aligned with the objectives. Well, I think we can say that there is, you know, a, a particular, I don't know if this is answering this first point particularly well, but, you know, that it is a very specific thing to this country that we have so many archaeological monuments, you know, I think it's something that's not maybe known outside of Ireland. And, you know, there is a kind of a specific issue there that maybe we, we can contribute to or address because of the unusual nature of our archaeological mm -hmm. remains. Enhanced conditionality. Well, again, my understanding of that is that landscape features are, are at the core of enhanced conditionality and, and protected archaeological sites are landscape features. Uh, plans should be ambitious for the environment and climate. <clears throat> well, I don't think, well, I guess that, you know, they can be ambitious. They, I don't think archaeological monuments are all that niche. You know, they kind of are, but we've 140, 120,000, something like that, of them across the country. A lot of people have them on their land. Not everybody, as Catherine was saying, but a lot of people have them on their land. And, uh, you know, I think it maybe has a broader reach than, than one presumes, if you, if you like. Um, I've shown that we can tie into relevant EU legislation, national plans. I showed you a range of plans which mention we know which have uh, addressed, shall we say, uh, heritage in the broadest sense and certainly built heritage. Um, plans should establish a clear baseline and lay down ambitious actions. Well, there's where we need a lot of help, I suppose. You know, I'm presuming that what they mean by that in that specific kind of a context would be that you'd, you'd see what your baseline biodiversity is and then start designing your management plans around that. Well, again, as I say to you, I'm speaking as an archeologist I'm kind of out of my comfort zone there. And that's where I think, you know, the potential for some kind of interaction with people who know about this, about ecology and, and what we're dealing with. And, you know, getting that sort of baseline data would be very useful from, from an archeological point of view too. And again, as I just make the point again, I don't, you know, be capable of attracting a large number of, of farmers and not be too specialist. Well, I think we might be, you know, in the ballpark there too, maybe, because we have so many monuments. And, and they appear on so, you know, on so many farms across the country. So what kind of, if, if we manage to kind of make a case on that basis, then what sort of actions will be needed? Well, I mean, it, it is management we're talking about. Uh, you know, there's, there's, no, there's no difficulty from an archeological point of view with having a monument managed, you know, provided it's done in a way that doesn't damage it. So you don't, like rewilding isn't good from our point of view, because of course, you know, that's, scrub encroachment and all the rest, isn't it, that we're, we're trying to kind of deal with. Um, the gloss actions, not just the archeological ones, I presume would still be of value because, you know, we have buffer areas that it seems to me can be converted to, to a biodiversity theme as they were somewhat in reps four. Uh, there are existing um, actions in gloss that might it might be possible to just kind of point them in, in the direction of archaeological monuments, like tying bird boxes and bat boxes to existing trees on monuments is, isn't, I don't think, going to cause 
problem from archaeology. I mean, all of this has to be talked through and worked through and make sure that, you know, it's done in a controlled fashion, which is why I say that when you have archaeologists and maybe ecologists working on this, we can make sure that we don't sort of transgress anybody's legislation, our legislation or, or, or any other. Um, taking monuments out of service or with no service trace out of production is certainly something that would be encouraged from an archaeological point of view. And, uh, you know, it, it was part of reps for a while. We'd be very happy to see that come back in. Some types of monuments benefit greatly from rewetting. Uh, not all of them, but, it, you know, that can work for us in some circumstances. Um, so that's really, you know, what, what we'd be interested to see happening in the future is to kind of go with this uh, biodiversity, try and recognize the value of monuments from a biodiversity standpoint and see what actions might, it might be possible to design around that idea in, in, in um, discussion with other, with other disciplines, I suppose. And with the, uh, you know, with the end aim, I suppose, of having monuments function as foci of biodiversity with a maybe a broader area around them going over to organic or high nature value farming. I mean, I don't know how possible it is, but it would be, I, I love the image of the monument being the kind of center of things and then other actions kind of radiating out from it. But we sure would need if the, if it were to happen at all. I mean, I'm kind of floating things here, I suppose. It seems like the 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 forum in which to do it. Um, we'd certainly need input from other disciplines to achieve something like that. So, uh, thank you for 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 listening this morning. Um, I hope, uh, I, I, and and it's particularly uh, gratifying to have been brought in in Heritage Week. So I, I hope you've enjoyed my presentation this morning. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Thanks very much, Hugh. I've really enjoyed your presentation and uh, you, you make the point very well that, uh, you know, we can't forget about uh, archaeology uh, when, you know, there's so much emphasis on climate change, biodiversity, water quality. Um, we, we have, there's a balance to be struck there. There's no doubt about that. And I think you're probably right about the, uh, you know, because we are particularly rich uh, in archaeology in this country compared with other European countries, perhaps that mm -hmm. it's not doesn't feature as highly on the agenda there at a cap level. So it really is important for us to 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 assert that uh, within our cap strategic plan. So that's something that there's consultation going on at the moment um, that uh, people can have a, an input into. So I expected that that will be another element that features. But it reminds me, of course, again, that all of these various different policies and um, and targets that farmers uh, are expected to adhere to. So that that support network is crucial, really, isn't it, to for farmers to to have access to the correct information. Um, and, and I suppose that leads on to my my first question to you is, is if farmers do have a question or uh, maybe are, are, are looking for advice on on, on, a, on, on a particular uh, management uh, of, of uh, maybe they have a, an archaeological feature on their farm. Where is the best place for them to to access that information, or is there a is there somebody they can talk to uh, to to actually give some some practical advice? Yeah, there there's there are both really. They the first stop would definitely be the historic environment viewer. I think they should look on that and see, uh, you know, is there any information? All of those little red dots have an accompanying file. Now, many of them, if you click on the red dot, you'll get a little bit of information, but there will be also a paper, not, not all of the red dots, but most of them, uh, but there will also be an accompanying paper file. So, you know, if, if your query isn't answered just by looking at that, then by absolutely, definitely get in touch with the National Monument Service. And I mean, you know, you have my email address there, but uh, there's also just national monuments, all one word, at housing.gov.ie would be a great place to send in just a general query. And I mean, we, we get so many, sometimes it's it's a, a notification because there might be an impact on a monument. Uh, it's very important that we get those in. And, but there can be, you know, you can send any kind of a general query in as well, and it'll be redirected to whoever, probably me or, or somebody else who, who deal with it for you. But absolutely, we'd like people to get in touch for sure.
Thank you. And Catherine, I mean, Chagas has made, uh, developed a number of publications around this over the years. I, I know that you have been instrumental in that side of things. I, what would be your advice be to farmers looking for more information? Well, I think their, their local advisor is the first port of contact for everything. And I think, you know, the, the advisors know now who to come to or, you know, through, through myself or through archaeology. I think advisors are more aware now. I think that's the big change maybe too. Mm. And hopefully when advisors are out on farms, they will spot things and, and say that. Uh, Hugh, um, when we look at the, the funding allocated to the protection and development of our archaeological network, how does Ireland fare when it compared to other countries or similar countries, for example, the UK? Um, from, from looking from the outside in, it looks to me like the UK seemed to, to uh, put more emphasis on this or, or, or value attached to it. Uh, am, I, am I right in that? Yeah, I don't think I wouldn't quite quite say that really. Now I don't I couldn't I don't really know the answer in detail to your question about sort of the the funding side of things, but it's a, they they run a kind of a different system. And again, I'm not a great expert on how they do things in the UK, but we, for example, have decided to give blanket protection to every monument. So there's a basic level of statutory protection to every monument here, uh, whereas in the UK they do it they do it slightly differently. You know. Um, so, so that kind of puts us in a different, in a different um, situation straight away, you know. Um, so we have that notification system where if, if there's work going to be to happen uh, at or in relation to is the, is the wording in the Act, in the, the National Monuments Amendment Act 1994, then if there's work going to hap happen at or in relation to a monument, which doesn't mean on it, it can be close to it, we, we need to know about it. Uh, in the National Monument Service and make a decision. So, in, in, and wow, I mean, how do you kind of put a, a, a price on that in a way? You know, we, we, we certainly get a whole lot of, uh, of, uh, of those notifications in. Um, and then, of course, as I say, we're involved in different areas of, of you know, the law of planning and so on, and, and even cross-compliance. Um, it's, it's very hard to compare, but I know, you know, having been at international conferences and things, you know what I, what I, what you do notice is, and I, I sort of started to go to some of these conferences just to get a flavour for how other countries are dealing with, you know, their archaeological monuments as much as anything, and I, I mean, I, it was amazing to think uh, of the kind of, um, for example, there was a, there was a case in Germany which was very very interesting, for where there was a a, a portion of the Roman. Limes. It was the kind of Roman boundary between the Germanic tribes and the Roman Empire. And in this particular place, they had developed a massive interpretative centre. But really what was left of the Limes was a line under the soil. And I was all in favour of them having done it. But my goodness, when you think that we have so much upstanding here, it's just a different, it's a different world, you know. Really, and, and do you feel we're not fully exploiting that and, and arriving? No, I, I think I think it's appreciated. I, I think and sometimes um, I feel that there, there, are, there are bodies who, who know that there's something there that they want to form a policy around, but they're not quite sure. Uh, you know, maybe how to just get the, not, not so much body, you know, to even, even kind of local groups, they're not quite sure where to get the information and where to go from there you know, that, that they might be uh, very afraid of doing damage. But the fact is, if they interact, you know, with the National Monument Service or whoever, then they can get the proper advice. You know, you can bring things along. I don't think you're, you, you know, you do have to be very, very careful, as I was saying during the presentation, you know, not to kind of overdo it. And, and you have to regard archaeological monuments as, as vulnerable, even though they don't always look it. But, um, you know, there, there are things you can do. And really, it's just to, to, to create those kind of links. We're always very anxious to do it, you know, between departments, between groups, whatever, you know, to, to try and make sure that people don't hesitate because they think they're going to break the law and maybe they're not. But also to, to kind of rein people in if they are going to go a bit too heavy handed with things. So it's just to have that sort of communication. I think it's very important. Yeah. We better get to the questions. Some really good questions <laughs> coming in there, Catherine, if you'd like yeah, to. And, 
And following on there, just two comments, one from um, Petra Knock Apple Green, where there's a fantastic archaeological EIP. We've heard of those in for biodiversity and the one up in Rathcrohan, mm. um, where Keir Kenny is very involved. But a lovely comment from Pe Petra, Hugh, you'll be delighted to say she, that she's finding that farmers in the EIP have a great willingness to actively protect their archaeological once they receive guidance on how to do so. Mm. So, you know, and, and she thinks it's very important that farmers get support both educational and financial to protect it so that that's um that's a lovely and it's, yeah. it's a very fantastic um eip there uh, just another comment um the vernacular features a query on that and i think we're talking there about the traditional buildings and we shall be following on nice in nice order i think you next week with anna Meehan with the traditional buildings on farms uh, bringing, bringing it up a little bit more modern, hmm. but not modern. And then a qu question for you that I'm interested in, in uh, where did the monuments in, in the UK countryside go? Are we just better at protecting them? Oh, I think it's difficult to answer that in detail. You, there, there's plenty of kind of theories, I guess, but I think it's different uh, um, agricultural practices, maybe, you know, uh, just different historical circumstances, really. It's I couldn't go into any greater detail than that um you know that seems to 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 have been the case I, it's very very hard question to answer i mean in other european countries you can even cite you know ro rolling artillery bombardments and some you know they've had two world wars in 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 belgium and france and you know ripping up vast tracts of places and i know in some countries as a result of the war now not necessarily the uk they were putting every square inch into production and I, I saw a photograph once of a plough that they were using, I think, to 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 break through wetlands in some part of Germany. And the thing was, you know, inconceivably long. So everything would have been destroyed. So I think there were just certain historical factors that that other countries uh, encountered and we didn't. And of course, really, we there wasn't so much ploughing going on in this country. You know, it was a cattle based economy wasn't it for many centuries and and I think you know the, the the necessity to disturb the ground wasn't there and that's played a part for us as well but also I think maybe you'd like to think and I'm sure it's true that um you know pish rogues and pe pe superstition but also on the positive side interest maybe uh, stopped people from from destroying things you know they had a feel for the places and and they survived we, we'll take some credit for it anyway um yeah, a question there, should we be encouraging public access to archaeological features or is it better, are they better preserved where there's limited public access to them? Oh, I think, no, bearing in mind that uh, most of the monuments are on private land, we can't be encouraging people to go in onto people's private land for sure. So that's that's something people have to kind of arrange themselves. But in the, in the general sense where monuments are accessible and you're allowed to go on, absolutely we want people to go on there and to and you know to to be aware that you know it's a finite resource and you have to treat it carefully uh you know like so many um you know even in the in the natural heritage area you know they say you go and you what is it you you leave nothing but silence and take nothing but you know memories that sort of stuff you absolutely we want people to go and enjoy them and know about them and be interested because that's well I guess there's a kind of passive surveillance in that but also it's just um you know the more people who are interested and curious about this uh about archaeological monuments and archaeology generally the better really there was a comment there uh, that you made during your presentation, uh, Hugh, about uh, greening is no more. Could you elaborate on that just a little bit? Uh, it's, it's, it's going, it's not going to be part, I think just maybe it's, now Catherine will probably explain this even better, but uh, my understanding is that it's not going to be part, sure it's not, as a term, whatever about, you know, I'm using the technical term greening, I suppose, rather than, you know, environmental Yes. Okay. Yes. It, it's more the technical term, as far as I understand it. That's going, isn't it? In, in the future. Yeah. Green. Well, greening is being replaced by, I suppose, eco schemes. Catherine, yes, that'd exactly. be fair to say. Yeah. 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 So hopefully, archaeology will be in there and yes, in, in in every facet. Yeah. 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 It was greening capital G, really. I was I was aiming for there. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Mark, a few. Uh, 
the scrub issue, some confusion on the in, in the questions mm. there. And again, but but very clear from, from Mary Dougherty and Teclan Doog, ecologists there about the fantastic biodiversity um on the on the monuments. Uh, Mary Dougherty saying she did a survey uh, in are uh, surveying these and provided guidelines on on particular monuments and that could be elaborated nationwide. And again Declan Doog um saying the archaeological features with a high protruding stone or bedrock exposed uh, components that are particularly significant for mosses, liverworts and, and species of shallow soils. And uh, again, flee from rewilding. So I think that answers other questions there about a slight confusion. And I think I would explain it that like scrub is good for biodiversity, but you know, we can have biodiversity on, on every other inch of the soil and the archaeological ones that are here for whatever thousands of years um, I would always say that the overriding consideration is the archaeology um, and maybe the rare species that Declan talks about there uh, that have never been touched for maybe ten, you know, thousands of years. But, um, but you know, where biodiversity, they go hand in hand, I think. There's no issue. There's no problem there. But it's just the scrub is bad for monuments. I think we need to get that clear. And that was what um, was kind of misunderstood a few years ago. Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't be, I would never want to totally denude them. You know, if there's, if there's, I don't know, vegetation of whatever sort that's been there for many, many years, uh, I don't think there's a, there's a difficulty with tearing that stuff up too, because you can damage the monument, you know, so I wouldn't necessarily want to sort of denude all the monuments in the country, not a chance. I mean, even that um, photograph, if you remember, uh, that I, in the presentation of the Mott at Kilbixie, like there are some very large trees on that, and I look at it and I think, yeah, I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be for cutting them down now at this stage, unless uh, one of them was at a very precarious angle and you thought it might fall. But so, so, and I feel the same way about scrub. I mean, you, there is that balance. You don't want to kind of destroy biodiversity, shall we say, to 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 strip everything off the monuments. It doesn't make sense in this day and age, I don't think. But well, I, I, think but I think that I think it's encroaching scrub. It's encroaching that. scrub is what we're after. It's just to kind of keep it at a level, you yeah. know. Yeah. We just have a, a time for probably one or two final questions. There's a question there in relation to the use of satellite imagery. Mm. remote sensing data to uh, to find low visibility site or crop marks is is the national monument service using this type of technology uh, um, or do you see that being used to to do some sort of mapping of the countryside and and those maybe those subterranean uh, type features uh, yeah might be picked up yeah we do use it uh, it's not something i'm i'm kind of involved in myself so i'm Probably not the best person to answer, but I know, for example, um, after the was it the very hot summer? Was it two thousand and I don't know, eighteen or nineteen or something? Was it the 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 imagery that came out from the Boyne Valley was extraordinary, and you know it's available online. You can see things that we we you know just in magnificent detail, and I think that was um, drone footage actually. But we do use lidar and stuff to to a degree, but it it, it ha it's not universal. But I mean, when I started, for example, looking at planning applications years ago, we had the RMP maps. You know, which was essentially they were um, Ordnance Survey six-inch sheets, some of which were surveyed in you know the forties. So there were entire housing estates, you know, suburbs actually, <laughs> uh, on the ground that weren't on the maps. And now we have. Um, just even on the historic environment viewer, we have you know two satellite imageries. The first edition, the the um, what's called the current edition, six inch, the twenty five inch, you know, and and even on the the um, the uh, satellite imagery, you can see so much really that you couldn't see. On you just hadn't got any way of seeing maybe even only. 10 years ago or something so it's changed a lot but those really detailed ones yeah we, it is used uh, and there are various surveys happening but I just I'm not kind of in the know about them in detail but certainly it's amazing what uh, you know even drone footage can turn up now you know extraordinary. Thanks. Thank you. Um, Catherine, we're, we're about to wrap up. Do you have any final comments you'd like the to make? Final comment again from Lorcan Scott there about National Heritage Week to remind people www.heritage.ie. You can search by county. And he was giving examples there relevant today of foraging to farming in County Galway, a virtual tour of archaeology on a burn farm. So go and look it up. Thanks, Mark. Well, I'm just sharing the website there. And it, it, it like 
Lorcan said, you could just type in your county and uh, search whatever area you're interested in. Okay, Hugh, thanks so much for a really excellent presentation and uh, some really good ideas there for uh, the powers of be for, for future schemes as well. Right. Always good to, to, to put these out there. Yeah. And uh, Catherine, thanks for helping with the questions today and uh, organizing uh, the, the series of talks as part of Heritage Week. Yeah, it's really, really important topic. And uh, I also want to thank Yvonne Maher, who's in the background helping us uh, today with the, the technical side of things. And of course, Andy Boland, uh, who is the uh, series producer. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review, and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson, and thanks for listening.